Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Plugged In Politics. I'm your host, Jace Wilkie, and here we keep you plugged into all the policy stakes and drama on Capitol Hill. So putting it bluntly, guys, not a whole lot happened this week. Uh, after the whole balloon fiasco back in February, political news has been rather stale lately, but that hasn't stopped me from writing new material. But we always like to stay on the grind here, and so with that being said, let's go on ahead and delve into this week's stories. So we're going to start things off today with uh, Trump's Waco rally kicking off his campaign season, then following that up with uh, China's growing friend circle, and then capping off the show with George Santos's shenanigans. So without any further ado, guys, let's go on ahead and get into it. So last week, Donald Trump kicked off his rally season in Waco, Texas, where he lashed out against many of the criminal investigations against him. Now, this rally was held on the 30th anniversary of the Waco siege from 1993, where federal agents engaged in a standoff with members of the Branch Davidian religious sect. So for those of you who haven't watched the miniseries Waco or have been living under a rock for years, the Waco incident alongside Ruby Ridge are some of the cornerstones of the anti-government distrust movement from, you know, back from the 1990s. Essentially, the Branch Davidians were a cult led by a man named David Koresh. He essentially held himself as a messiah-like figure and had unilateral control of the cult. I mean, he even had the authority, at least within the cult, to breach cult members' personal lives, have really, really questionable practices between spouses, and uh, there were some speculations about what was going on with the children in the cult. Uh, they lived in a compound just outside of Waco, Texas, where they were shoring up uh, large arsenals of weapons. Now, this kind of activity is what gets the ATF's iron sights on you. So, the ATF went out to conduct a warrant and seize the weapons. Eventually, a standoff ensued, and, and to this day, no one knows who shot first, and it led to a two-month-long siege. In a desperate effort to get the cultists out of the building, the feds pumped tear gas into the compound. But here's the thing. Tear gas is flammable. So the building went up in flames, and it killed almost 80 cult members, including women and children. Now, I don't want to go at length about all of the legal shadiness of the incident, nor do I need to go on about government overreach on this issue. It's all been said before, and likely with better poise than me. If you want to learn more about Waco, I'm sure there's plenty of YouTube videos or podcast segments out there to, to satiate your curiosity. The main point is, Waco is a big deal in conservative circles when examining government reach and the perceived nature of control, especially when eliciting a cultural response to fighting back. This is especially interesting to consider that there were a ton of homages to the Jan 6 rioters and insurrectionists that are currently in custody. But what exactly was said at the rally, and, and who was there? I mean, first and most obviously, we got our big wet boy, uh, Donald Trump had plenty to say in his 95-minute speech. I mean, it was a grab bag of issues, including attacks on Biden's border policies, rants about globalists, new election rules, military aid to Ukraine, and other vultures who opposed him. And I think there's a few clips that kind of raise some eyebrows here. Uh, go on ahead and take a listen. And 2024 is the final battle. That's going to be the big one. You put me back in the White House. Their reign will be over. And America will be a free nation once again. You will be vindicated and proud, and the thugs and criminals who are corrupting our justice system will be defeated, discredited, and totally disgraced. That's what's happening. And we will keep men out of women's sports. 
I will not give one penny to any school that is a vaccine mandate or a mask mandate. For those who have been wronged and betrayed, of which there are many people out there that have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. We will take care of it. So it's pretty clear to me that Donald is leaning into the whole I am your retribution kind of approach. And I'll touch on that rhetoric in a little bit. But also at the rally was Texas-based guitarist Ted Nugent, who played the Star Spangled Banner and had this viral moment at the rally. Weirdo. Hmm. I gotta say, pretty enlightening political commentary here, guys. Actually, you know what? Screw it. Let's give Ted Nugent his own position in foreign policy. Make him Secretary of State. I'm sure that would go smoothly. But for real here, guys, sometimes I have to sit back and genuinely ask myself, who and what in God's name am I arguing against? Seriously, Zelensky is a gay fiend? Like, what? Where did you get this from? The man is married to a woman. Ted, Ted, I'm reaching out to you here, Ted, okay? Hold my hand through the screen or monitor or whatever you may be listening you know, to this from. Do you want to talk about something? Because it's pretty clear there's something on your mind. But back to the substance here, guys. Uh, also speaking at the rally was Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Now, guys, Dan Patrick is an interesting nut, to say the least. Being a Texas native, I've been able to see his exploits in the news pretty consistently. I mean, for starters, he's made culture war issues in the classroom his current political priority. Uh, he was also responsible for basically being one of the main architects, at least in the thought sphere, over that entire tip line about people leaving the state for abortions. I mean, this guy, this guy is pretty ruthless. But largely, at this rally, his comments were restricted to, you know, supporting Donald Trump, and claiming the decision to do the rally in Waco that day was his decision. Uh, we'll play the clip here for you. But most importantly, we also had good old MyPillow CEO Mike Lindell in appearance. Uh, he also delivered a speech, the, the first speech in fact, and mostly talked about how if Trump is indicted, he'll win the 2024 election automatically. He also went on to stress that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis should endorse Trump. But I think what was most funny about this whole appearance was his incessant attempts at convincing rally-goers to buy his brand's new product line of slippers, claiming that advertisers and platforms have been canceling him and he needs their support. I, I, I just can't anymore. I, I love... I, as much as I know Lindell is a conspiracy nutter butter, I, I can't help but love him. I mean, look at the guy. He's adorable. He's like the guy who, you know, walks up and asks you to, to help him work on Facebook so he can contact his daughter that never speaks to him anymore. But uh, to be frank here, guys, uh, this was honestly the Avengers lineup of political crazies. Uh, but aside from a few interesting moments, kind of like CPAC, it's been really flaccid, guys. I'm expecting them to blow the doors off the hinges with insanity, like, like their election and COVID denialism in the past. But instead, I'm stuck here with more and more disappointing and uninteresting events. I think it's just that it's getting all too samey. I mean, they're not saying anything new. We, we know you're going to continue to spout that the election was rigged and yada, yada, yada. We know you're going to talk about globalist elites, even though you're kind of one of them. And you're just going to spout out anti-rhino rhetoric and bash the left communist socialist. Da, 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 da. Dude, it's all the same stuff. And it's kind of scary if you think about it. If this level of incendiary and rhetoric 
in insurrectional language are now becoming the norm from this faction, and it's just another day in Trump world, what's to say it doesn't start gaining a true foothold? I mean, this passive acceptance from all of us, and I'm including me, I'm a part of this, is what leads to this type of rhetoric gaining power. But the most we can do, at least at this point in time, is, is to sit back, watch, and push back against their false claims. The actual enforcement is now down to prosecutors and the institutions that be. I think it's ultimately is alarming to see this ramp up in patriotic and protest, protest, protest language, especially after seeing what happened last time. I'm pretty sure Jan 6th is not the apex of what Trump supporter mob is capable of. And, and taking a minute to evaluate what's going on with the increased prevalence of uh, Trump vaguely calling his supporters to be patriotic and to protest, 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 I find it low-key disturbing. In fact, he's already making moves to make himself almost a figure that transcends tangible reality in calling himself this quote-unquote retribution. When we as humans assign this kind of mythical framework to political figures, that's when real harm can be done. I mean, not even Reagan or FDR has this level of mysticism or, or, or fanaticism. And as the primaries inch their way closer and closer, we're probably going to see an increase of this kind of rhetoric and how it's being invoked. Like I said earlier, guys, the most we can do is just sit back and watch. And it'll certainly be fascinating to see how this so-called movement develops throughout this campaign, uh, as grave as some of its implications may be. All right, so this segment's going to be a little bit different, guys. I mean, the news has been so dry lately that I have to go to offshore stories to, you know, make things interesting. It at least spices it up a little bit. So on Sunday, Honduras established diplomatic ties with China after it cut its decades-long ties with Taiwan. Not only did they cut ties with Taiwan, but Honduras also rescinded its recognition of Taiwan as a sovereign nation. Uh, this whittles down the total number of nations that recognize Taiwan to 13. So this obviously was Honduras placating to the One China policy. Uh, so after the conclusion of the Chinese Civil War back in the 1940s and 50s, the Republic of China was defeated on the mainland and then retreated to the island of Taiwan. And it claimed that it was the real China, uh, basically governing in exile throughout the Cold War. Uh, eventually, over time, the people on the island embraced Taiwan and no longer claimed to be the real China. However, under the One China policy, China is bound by its own law to unify the nation and reabsorb Taiwan into its borders. This is why we see military pokes of aggression from China into Taiwan, such as missile exercises, jet flyovers, and naval positioning. So when you observe uh, diplomatic allegiance to China, a big condition typically is to recognize the One China policy and thus disavowing Taiwan. Essentially, China is minimizing political backlash for their eventual hypothetical invasion of Taiwan, and we have a few indications that suggest such an invasion is coming. I mean, for instance, after being elected to a third term, President Xi Jinping has assembled what has been dubbed the War Council, and, and military experts are predicting an invasion of Taiwan sometime by, you know, 2027. And given their industrialization and rapid development of its naval military power, it certainly gestures that they're interested in such military action. Now, Taiwan has gone on to claim that Honduras had received a serious financial incentive from China in return for its diplomatic move. And to be fair, there are economic incentives from China, including potential infrastructural development. I mean, let's be clear, guys, before I go any further, I'm not a foreign policy expert. 
However, I am familiar with the fact that China, in an attempt to gain greater geopolitical power, is making major moves to gain favor from nations in the underdeveloped world and global south. This includes potentially predatory infrastructure projects. For example, let's look to East Africa here. China has constructed ports through loans that the nation would then be responsible for. It's basically like saying, yo, what's going on? I see your infrastructure is a little light there, dog. You know, I could do you solid and build you a port if you want or some highways, but you're going to be totally responsible for this uh, financial responsibility here. Uh, you owe us. You owe us, essentially, which makes sense. It's you know, an economic trade here. Uh, if one country does something for you, there's going to be some price tags attached to it. But essentially, if these countries can't pay back these huge loans, the port then belongs to China for the next hundred years per the agreement. It's pretty genius, honestly. It's practically soft imperialism. Uh, so let's say that same port I was talking about earlier in the hypothetical scenario, China then gets to basically claim it as their own. They either receive all the money that goes through based off of foreign trade, or, and this is very important here, has extreme wide nets of strategic locations. They could either launch military power from there or execute some forms of soft power or basically intercepting supply lines. However, I wonder what the United States response would be in the scenario that these projects are under development in the Western Hemisphere, such as Honduras. Maybe in the future we see some sort of, uh, you know, similar infrastructure projects, but that remains to be seen. I mean, it's a short segment here, guys. I don't really have a whole lot to say on it, but I do think it's really interesting when looking at the grand and broader geopolitical implications, particularly on the subject of Taiwan. So we're just going to have to keep our ears to the ground on this one. So for today's last segment, I thought it'd be appropriate to see how the painfully incompetent version of Frank Abagnale was doing. So, according to information obtained by CNN, Brazilian prosecutors have agreed to a deal with Representative George Santos regarding the case where he is accused of defrauding a Rio de Janeiro clerk of $1,300 in 2008. So, for those of you who are new to this whole list of uh, Santos's shenanigans, he's essentially the world's worst liar. I don't really need to go into extreme detail here, but Santos has been caught in an exhausted string of lies, including the claim, mind you, that his mother died in one of the World Trade Center towers in 9-11. Yeah. Yeah, that got disproven pretty quickly. So, if you want to hear these details, I encourage you to check out the first episode of this podcast uh, under the title, Dealing with Kevin and the Lies of Santos. Alright, now that you've... I'm assuming you've gone on ahead and listened to that podcast. So now that you're all caught up, one of the things when looking over the long history of Santos is this criminal case levied against him by the Brazilian government. So, while living in Brazil for a period of time, in 2008, yes, he lived in Brazil. Dude, Mans has an incredibly interesting, murky, albeit full of lies, backstory, but it's worth taking a look at. So, anyway, back in 2008, Santos wrote bad checks from a stolen checkbook that belonged to an elderly man that his mother had been caring for at the time. Yeah, we're, we're stooping that low. So, he purchased, with these stolen checks... Clothes and shoes, and it, and it totaled to around $1,300. Bruh, can you speak broke any louder? I mean, I don't have much of a leg to stand on. I'm just a broke kid making podcasts to, you know, 15 listeners, so I'm not exactly rolling in cash myself, but I'm not the one stealing money from elderly people with caretakers. Now, the reason he's only facing the backlash from this now 
is because he left Brazil sometime after 2010 uh, when he made law enforcement aware of the incident. At the time, Brazilian authorities then couldn't find an address to serve him papers intimating him to appear in court. So they eventually just kind of shelved the case, I guess? That is, until he was elected representative of New York's 3rd Congressional District. I mean, this was when his previous lies and antics were being laid bare for all of us to see while we all drank wine and enjoying his blunders. I mean, we're talking to, you know, a la the uh, 9-11 stories being claimed, like claiming he's Jew-ish, you know, like a Tumblr girl saying ish at the end of everything to describe themselves in some vaguely quirky way. But that that aside, right? With this heightened level of attention and coverage, Brazil had finally found a means of knowing his location and thus contacting him and serving him those papers. So down to the main spiel here, a petition from Santos's attorney requesting a deal states that Santos would agree to formally confess to the crime and pay damages to the victim as required in Brazilian law. And additionally, a memo has come out from the prosecutors that agreed to the deal so long as the defense, Santos, uh, can assure that they have the ability to contact and repay the victim before the deal is finalized. So it essentially just means he's going to have to pay back, you know, the $1,300 and call it a day, you know, just a little slap on the wrist. I mean, personally, I hope there's some interest attached to that because, I mean, an outstanding $1,300 check for, what was it, 2008? So it's for like 15 years? No, nah, that ain't going to slide in my book. But anyways, in a statement to CNN, the prosecutor's office then stressed that the deal is not final until all of those conditions are met. So it basically is up to Santos, you know, following through and, you know, finalizing that deal, making sure to contact the victim and actually repay him, which, as we're going to get to in a second, he does not exactly have a great history of doing that. But let's kind of address something here real quick. So kind of back to my spiel earlier about the idea that only paying back the $1,300 and nothing more is kind of a light sentencing here or a light consequence. Uh, there is a legal precedent for this. Uh, agreements can be reached in nonviolent cases where the sentencing minimum is under four years. And seeing that this case fits that criteria, it, it makes sense. So my thoughts on this. I mean, at least the rat is finally confronting some form of consequences. And you know what sucks about all this? This man is likely going to have a procedural law named after him. Like we mentioned earlier, the Santos Act, which is being, uh, you know, proposed in government and Congress right now, basically stipulates that people who are not honest about their background, their employment history, and all that good jazz are basically going to be prevented from holding office. And he's likely going to be cemented in American history because it's literally named the Santos Act, the acronym for the entire bill. But I think all of this does kind of draw back to the fact that his antics have just gotten to the point where basically no one likes him. Not the Dems, not the Independents, and not even his own party. I mean, sure, McCarthy tolerates him, but let's be frank, it's kind of out of necessity. You're the majority speaker of an incredibly tight house split where a few votes of defectors can effectively stonewall your entire agenda. And every red seat matters in that scenario. Which is why, despite calls from his own Republican colleagues... McCarthy refuses to allow Santos to step down from his seat. He won New York's third congressional district. So in the scenario where he steps down from his seat, that would mean a special election would have to take place in order to refill it. New York's third congressional district in that scenario is a very tight demographic election scenario. There's no guarantee whether or not they'll maintain that seat following a special election. It may swing blue. So McCarthy's just not going to be risking that. And, and why should he? 
this whole thing does help Santos at the very least get rid of one of the 30 monkeys currently sitting on his back. I mean, let's go on ahead and recall one of our previous podcasts where we talked about Santos's other potential legal troubles. I mean, he's still got a pending investigation of his GoFundMe scam where he stole money from a homeless veteran for crying out loud. I mean, for those of you who aren't familiar with the story, uh, go check out episode two on the podcast titled It's Classified. Um, but do be warned, the audio on that one is absolutely scuffed. Uh, I had to record one of the last segments in my car, and the result is absolutely cursed. But anyways, in, in that episode, we covered how Santos managed to use GoFundMe to raise $3,000 to pay for a surgery for a homeless veteran's dog. Now, the poor baby's name was Sapphire. She had cancer on her abdomen and needed surgery to remove it. And she would have been saved if it weren't for one teeny tiny little thing. Santos just took the money and pocketed it. The, the veteran showed up to the vet that Santos directed him to go, and the vet just never received the money to pay for the surgery. Sapphire sadly died uh, back in 2017, and Santos has just never had to deal with it. That is until he became a congressman. I know, it's almost like the majority of his troubles came when, you know, you become one of the most publicly broadcasted positions in the, in, in the country. You know, it's not like if you're a small business owner, this is going to be laid bare for everyone to see. When you're in front of television screens and you are a source of political and public dialogue, yeah, your your bones are going to come walking and dancing out of the closet. It, it's almost like the mistakes catch up with you when you're at the apex of influence and fame. But anyways, we covered the story that the Manhattan District Attorney is looking to investigate this matter and potentially press charges. So given that Santos is working to sweep his Brazilian legal matter under the rug, his PR team is working overtime to get these cases knocked out. I don't have experience with this, but it's certainly more manageable to only be dealing with one legal case at a time if you're a defendant. Now, this segment certainly wasn't much in the way of substance, but, but at this point, I just think it's entertaining. It's not often that we see someone who, at every turn, has just strewn out gardening hose throughout his lawn and successfully runs into each of them. It's like watching a car crash, you just can't look away. I mean, dude, you literally stole money from an elderly man. I don't know how it doesn't compute that it's not a good optics thing. But hey, maybe that's just me. And maybe while they're investigating Santos, we'll finally actually find his non-existent husband. All right, you guys, that's the end of the podcast. And as always, I, I want to thank you guys for tuning in to, you know, episodes every week. It, it really means the world to me. I love you guys. I mean that from my heart, dude. Make sure to support the show on social media, such as Instagram and Twitter. And make sure to tune into podcast episodes that I release every week. You know, they can be on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Anchor. And I'll see you guys in the next one. Take it easy.